Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our next-gen pastor, Myron Jellison, for this week's message. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the journey with Jesus through the book of Mark. And we've been unpacking for so many weeks, learning so much about who he is, what he taught, and what is the implication for you and I? And that's exactly what the author of the book of Mark is is really trying to push us to, is this decision of who is Jesus? And I think today's passage we're going to cover, I want to really extract that and ask you that question again today Who is Jesus to you specifically? Who is he in your life? And based on our response to that or our our decision and our identification of who Jesus is in our life, some things will be reflected based on that decision that are gonna be highlighted today by one of the people we will, will study in the scriptures. And we'll be in Mark 14. So if you got your Bibles, get there, digital device, uh, you can get there and read through. We'll do the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14. Now, before we dive into the, the text, I just wanna kind of set up where we are. Like I, I mentioned last time I taught, if you, if you heard that message, we're studying a week in history. It's called Holy Week. And we've been in this week of history for a few weeks now, and it's almost over. There's only a few more days left. Jesus is about to be handed over and crucified on a cross. There's about two days until that is about to happen. And he's been teaching in the city of Jerusalem. He's been having conversation with the religious elite. He's been uh, blowing people's minds with his teaching and his, his, uh, his, his words and his actions. And there's just this mesmerization around. There's this buzz going on in the city. And on day one of Holy Week, we call it the triumphal entry. He came in and they're shouting Hosanna and they're thinking he's gonna lead a political revolution. Then he doesn't. The day two, he comes in and flips all these tables over and really goes at the religious elite for them putting up obstacles and hindrances for the Gentile people to come and have a connection with God. And then he starts teaching these parables and people are just like amazed by his words and what authority he does all these things in. And then a few weeks ago, we had this question and answer time to where they just just kept berating him with question after question after question. He keeps upstaging him with incredible answers. And he's just, the people are like in awe of what he's saying and how he's kind of upstaging these religious elite. And then last week we, we talked about um, the end times, the spookiness of end times around Halloween and, and the Olivet Discourse is what that's called on the Mount of Olives where Jesus kind of unpacks this. And we did that last week. And so to, to today, I want us to go and look at Mark 14 and Jesus is going to be in in, in a place called Bethany, which is kind of where he's been staying this whole time uh, while he's been uh, in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, the the Passover meal that's about to happen and getting ready for this this celebration. And he couldn't stay in the city because there were so many people that every good Jewish person would have been in the city. Like that's where they would have been. They would have come from all around. He couldn't stay in the city. So he's staying outside the city in this place called Bethany. And so he's there at a house in Bethany because there's no room for him in the inn or inside the city. And this is where we pick up. And so this, this, this style that we're gonna see, the way Mark wrote this is a, is a style that, that, that he's done through the book of Mark where he kind of does a sandwich. And I think Jen talked about the sandwich, right? There's a piece of bread, then there's some meat, then there's another piece of bread. So the two pieces of bread today are gonna be kind of connected. And then there's the story inside of them that's kind of the meat. And it's kind of the main part that I wanna focus on. But there are these two other 
accounts or two of the things that it's mentioned in this passage that I want to tie together and get to the meat. Here we go. Mark 14. He's in Bethany. He's in a house. It's two days until Passover. Verse one, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now it has gone to murder. Like they wanted just to get rid of him, silence him, arrest him, kick him out. Now they are saying they want to kill this man. For they said, not during the feast. We can't do it during the Passover feast lest there be an uproar from the people. They're they're too smart. They're like, you know what? We would have a riot on our hands if we did this right now. We're not going to do this right now. And I just want to remind us of what Passover is real quick and why there's all this buzz going on and why it's significant that there's two days before the Passover. Because Passover, if you go back in the Old Testament, God's people, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, they were enslaved and in bondage with the Egyptians. And there was all these plagues that were coming and and the Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not letting you go. And finally, finally, the final one was the angel of death was gonna come and kill the firstborn males in every house. Unless you slaughtered the lamb, like God said, put this blood on your window or on your door frame above your door and that angel of death would pass by. So every, every nation of Israel household did this, followed God's instructions, put the blood of the lamb across their door frame and the angel of death passed over them. And finally, Pharaoh said, get out, see you. And so that's why it's significant that they celebrate. They set aside one day to have this meal where they would sacrifice a lamb, eat this lamb in remembrance of what God had done, how he had delivered their people so many years ago. And it's been an annual festival, an annual feast on this day. So it's two days until that feast, that meal is going to be, be, be prepared. And, and, and the Pharisees are like, you know what? You know, we're not gonna do it during this feast. Too many people, it's, it's too, it, there's too much going on. He's got a following. People are amazed by him. We would have an uproar and a riot. But you know what's so ironic is God's sovereignty in all of this is like Pharisees, scribes, do you think you're in control and gonna do your plan? God's like, no, I have a different plan that I've ordained already that in two days on this Passover feast, The sacrificial lamb of God, the son of God, the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world is going to be slaughtered on this Passover. So you didn't want to do it during this festival. You thought you were in control, but God's got a sovereign plan that he's going to allow this. And you think, you know, you're not going to kill Jesus. Jesus is going to give up his life. He's going to give it up. He's going to be the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world on this Passover. In two days, he will be crucified on this cross. It's a powerful time and it's building and we got two days until it happens. It's crazy. And so that's the significance of Passover. That's the significance of God's sovereignty. And the reality is, is that something's about to happen, this story with this woman. And then in verse 10, I wanna jump down to verse 10 real quick before we get to the meat of the sandwich, we'll go to the other piece of bread. Then Judas Iscariot, after this thing happened in this house, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, meaning Jesus, to them. And when they heard it, the scribes and Pharisees, they were glad and they promised to give him some money. There was a money exchange. There was a, a promise of money. Like, hey, once you do this, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you. And he sought for the opportunity to betray him. Crazy, God's sovereignty. You thought you were gonna do it another time, but this is the time in which God has decided that he will lay down his own life through his son, Jesus, on this Passover in two days. And Judas is the instrument that's gonna kind of cause all of that to happen and to be so in two days.
That's the two breads. That's the two stories. Now here's the middle one, okay? So he's in a house. This, he's in a house. He's kind of having a dinner, a dinner party with his apostles and some people. Uh, again, there's a lot of people around. And it's not just a small dinner party of like a few people. This is kind of a bigger dinner party. And so I wanna keep that in mind. It's not just a little like few people. It's a big thing that's happening in this home this night. And in verse three, it says this, that while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head, Jesus's head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Why was this ointment wasted? Underline that, wasted. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, underline. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world and the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. When I read this account, I want to focus, I want to look at this account through the lens of worship. I want to look at this account through the lens of worship. What does it mean to worship God? And based on the preliminary question I asked you of who is Jesus to you, our life will reflect, do we actually worship Jesus? I don't mean like, Praise you, God, hands up. Like that's like, we think of worship as that or we're swaying, we're feeling it. You know, like that's not what worship is. That is an aspect and a part of our response to him. But worship is way bigger than that. It is a lifestyle of response because of who Jesus is in your life and recognizing what he has done on your behalf. You will reflect, imitate, and then uh, be obedient to everything that he's calling you to do and live a lifestyle worthy of worship and honoring God, Jesus, the savior of your, of, your, of your life. And so what is worship? And there's three characters or three groups of people in this passage that I wanna highlight and look at how they worshiped. And then we decide where are areas that we worship this way, where it's good, where it's bad, and what does true worship actually look like for us? So how do we worship? Number one, the first group, three ways we worship. The first group is, do we worship like the Pharisees? They were mentioned at the beginning. Do we worship like the Pharisees? The, the Pharisees worship out of ritual. They have worshiped out of ritual. They have, they have made, they've made all these different laws and rules like protecting us from getting to the line. We've kind of talked about this previously in the, in, in this, in the study of Mark. Like they've put layers to keep us, their people from going, crossing the line of God's command. And then they start to worship and they start to idolize their rules that they've made. And God came in, Jesus came in and rebuked them and said, you guys are like, what are you doing? And he rebukes them in Matthew 15. You can read this. It'll be on screen, but you can go study Matthew 15. There's a section where it says, and why do you break the command of God? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Why do you compromise your integrity before God with what he has commanded for the sake of your own tradition where you are worshiping your own rituals and they have become an idol in your life? And you've missed it to where, what is God calling you to and commanding you to? 
little while on down farther in verse eight in Matthew 15, there's a prophecy that Jesus is quoting about them. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Rules. Like, yeah, Pharisees, like, like you, you say one thing, like you, you worship me with lips. You got these really beautiful prayers and these teachings and all of this stuff that you say it, but man, on the inside, your heart is far from me. You worship me in vain. You're all about your man-made human rules that you have placed. They've become an idol in your life. And Jesus also pointed out like, hey, you guys have the ceremonial cleaning of this cup, which was an instrument used to, to, in, in their worship. You said you clean the outside and make sure the outside looks really beautiful, but you neglect the inside. He's not really talking about the cup. He's talking about them. He's like, you put on the robes, you put on the outfits, you put on the display, you put it on your Instagram pictures, you put it on your profiles, you display like you follow Jesus, that you understand God's commands and love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. But on the inside, you are far from it. You don't get it. There's a disconnect between your exterior and your interior. Woe to you, he says, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. And the reality is, is when we worship like a Pharisee, when we worship out of rituals for ritualistic sake, that ritual will always lead to idolatry. It will become the thing that we worship. And it's like this, I gotta pray. I got to, I have to, I gotta pray before every meal. I gotta go to confession. I gotta read my Bible, X, Y, Z, this many times. I gotta do this. I gotta do this. I gotta show up to church. I gotta raise my hands. I have to, I have to, I have to. It becomes a list of things that I have to do. And some of us have these tendencies to want to worship a ritual and go through the process and call that worship. And Jesus would probably say to you, like he said to them, like, hold on, like, let's get back to the why. Let's get back to to why you have this response. It's not about rituals and rules. It's about a relationship with me and a response to me of who I am in your life. Jesus called him out over and over and over again. First one he called him out was with healing on the Sabbath. They made a rule that you can't heal on the Sabbath because that would be deemed work, right? And you can't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, that's stupid. <laughs> like, this is a good word. This person needs help and intervention. I can do this and heal them and it's not work. And then another one is uh, the disciples were kind of walking through a field and they would grab some of the grain and eat it. And they're like, well, you, 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 your people got to wash their hands. Like, how dare your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? And she's like, you guys don't get it. It's not about what you consume that defiles you. It's from, the, like, from what comes from the inside that defiles you, not what you take from the outside and put in. He says, like, you guys don't, you don't get it. You're worshiping your rituals, your man-made rules. And then a few weeks ago, we had that Q&A session where he asked him about taxes, should we pay taxes? And then, you know, marriage, if, if one brother's, or if a, if a woman's husband dies and the brother's got to marry her to try to give her a kid. And then if he dies and someone else, the next brother marries her and then in heaven, who's she married to? And he's like, you guys don't get it. And then they question about what's the greatest command. And Jesus answers, you know, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love others as you love yourself. And they were astounded and he upstaged them with all this. He called them out for their idolatry. He called them out for their, their, their worshiping rituals and not worshiping who God is, who he is in their life, authentically, genuinely, out of gratitude for who he is and what he does for them. They thought they were honoring God with their rituals. They thought they were. And it's dangerous when our worship becomes about what we do rather than why we do it. It becomes dangerous for us. It becomes a chance to be an idol in our life 
when we focus on the what and we remove the why and we don't understand why we do these things. Because the reality is a lot of these things about worship, uh, an expression of worship and response can become idealistic because it's about a preference. Like, is it acapella, right? Or is it full rock band? Is it no lights and plain environment or let's go full fog, full lights and really create some energy and expression in here. Is it no drums? Is it drums? Is it, should I raise my hands? Is it just one hand or two hands? Or is it like, what, like, what is it? Sing loud, not sing at all. Can I sit and reflect? And we wanna try to go extract Bible verses to try to validate our preference of why we think the expression of worship should be the way that it should be. That's why churches have such variety because we get prideful, we get pharisaical, not on purpose, but that's the human nature and we do things out of ritual, out of preference, and we lose sight of why. Why are we doing these things? And if we're really honest, we might be more like the Pharisees than we want to admit. I'm guilty. I'll be the first one to admit it. I like things done my way. I'm a selfish pig. I'm a human being. You're a human. I think we're all selfish, and we like to do things the way that we want them to be done. We have our preferences. And we say, well, if you, well, the way I do it honors God better. So therefore your way isn't as good. So therefore you need to do it my way. And it's like, hold on, bro, slow down. Like if it's not violating scripture, if it's not violating God's truth in his word, someone's expression of worship is their expression of worship and response to who God is in their life. And it may not be your preference, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. And we wanna paint these guys, the Pharisees as the bad guys. But the reality is that we're more like them than we would admit, so then we would be the bad guys. And we're not worthy of Jesus, we're not. We don't deserve him. But if we humble ourselves and realize it's not about us and, and, and try to abstain from those Pharisaical tendencies that all of us struggle with, we can engage with our savior in a way in which is authentic worship and response of who he is, Lord and savior of my life. King, the priority, my provider, that's genuine worship. And it looks different for all of us. So some of us might raise our hands because that's the way we respond. Some of us guys, I'm with you. I'm not a hand raiser. It's uncomfortable for me. I don't know why, but I'll sit right here and I'll cry, tear run down my face and I feel the spirit moving inside of me. I don't have to do this. But I sit and I meditate. Sometimes I'll sing. Sometimes I'll sit and meditate and think or I'll sit and just reflect and I will feel and I will, I will worship what he has done and who he is in my life. And it doesn't fit every single person's model one way. And so the, 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 one of the dangers is, is we take a lot of these scriptures and we want to do binoculars where we say, well, that church over there, they're doing it wrong. <laughs> Can't believe they're doing that. It's weird. It's crazy. Or I look at someone else over here who's, this guy's got his hand raised. He's like, he's just trying to impress his girlfriend because he wants to like date her. You know, he's like making sure that he's got like, you know, putting on a show. So she thinks he's more spiritual than he really is. Like, and we take binoculars and we look at people and we highlight and say, yeah, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. We need to take these kind of scriptures and make it a mirror and say, God, highlight. Let me see in my life where I've accidentally, unintentionally gravitated to a way in which I express my, my, uh, my gratitude towards you unhealthily because it becomes a ritual, becomes a checkbox. It becomes a thing I do because I feel like I have to, not because I get to. Make it a mirror. So that's the Pharisees. Second, People are the disciples. So the disciples are in this room in this dinner party and they're watching this happen where she breaks the bottle of nard and, and dumps it over Jesus's head. And the crazy thing is, is put yourself in that room, okay? 
Put yourself in that room. That bottle of nard, 300 denarii is about a year's wage, a year's salary for them. Let's just go with the national average of about $45,000 worth of essential oil. I didn't know essential oils could be that much. I even looked it up. Like, like some essential oils today from the Himalayan mountains, like $2,500 for an ounce of essential oil. It's crazy. It'd be like a miracle drug. But she cracks this thing open. She dumps it on his head in worship and reverence to him. And they go, what a waste. What a waste of $45,000. We could have sold that. Do you know how much good we could have done with $45,000? You know how many kids we could have fed on the streets with $45,000? You know how many, you know, a missionary we could have sent to a foreign country to preach the gospel with $45,000? What a waste. And I think the reason the disciples were so indignant and scolded her and was so mean to her is because they worshiped out of an agenda. Out of an agenda. They worshiped Jesus out of an agenda. They saw Jesus in light of their earthly desires and earthly kingdom. And they thought he was gonna reinstate things the way it used to be in the good old days. A political revolution. He's gonna be delivered from Roman oppression. We're gonna take this thing over and it's gonna be amazing. We're gonna have wealth and prosperity and we're gonna have freedom. It's gonna be incredible. We're here on earth. And they viewed Jesus with this agenda in light of their earthly wants and desires because they, when Jesus showed up in their life and said, hey, come follow me, they, they, they listened and they realized that he's the Messiah. He's the deliverer. And for three years, they followed him and they never once lacked for food. They never once lacked for shelter. They saw incredible healings. And now they're hopeful that there's gonna be freedom from Roman oppression and restoration to how it used to be. This is the guy. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And, and Jesus is like trying to tell him like, you don't fully get it. Like you get most of it. Like you're so close, Peter, you're so close. Guys, you're so Closed, but they didn't quite fully get it. They were still living and worshiping Jesus out of an agenda they had for earthly needs and wants and desires of a kingdom restored here on earth. And they didn't fully get it. And, and there was three times that Jesus told his closest followers, his apostles, he's like, guys, I'm gonna be handed over to the chief priests. They're gonna give me over the Romans. I'm gonna be crucified and I'm gonna come back from the dead. And the first time he says it, Peter goes, no way, Lord, there's no way we let that happen. And, 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 and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like you have your mind set on things here, not on things above. You have your own will, your own agenda in mind, not God's will and God's plan in mind. Get behind me, Satan. Not a good thing. They didn't fully get it. The next time Jesus does this, he's like, hey guys, listen, I know I said it once before. Uh, I'm gonna be handed over. I'm gonna be crucified. I'm gonna come back from the grave, Okay. And you know what they do? They're like, they kind of like, they kind of didn't get it. And then they're all talking with each other about who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to be secretary of state? Who's going to be the speaker of the house? Who's going to be this in his campaign? Who's going to be able to sit at the right and left? Who's going to have all the power in his new authority here on earth? And they didn't get it. They didn't understand that he wasn't doing a earthly kingdom restoration. He was saving all of humanity for all time for eternity. And then another time, he says, hey guys, you know, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be handed over, I'm gonna be crucified, I'm gonna go back to the grave. Two guys couldn't leave the who's gonna be greatest conversation from last time and say, hey, our mom is coming with us, we're going to Jesus, James and John, tough guys, got their mom involved and said, hey, let my two boys sit at your right hand and your right, left hand. And Jesus goes, you guys just don't get it. They don't fully get it. They will eventually get it when they see the risen Jesus. 
But at this moment, they don't get it. They have an agenda in mind. They are indignant. They are scolding this woman because of what she has done, the wastefulness of that $45,000 to where they could go and feed more orphans and take care of more widows because that's what Jesus called them to do. They, they, they met with and loved and served and helped the outcast and the marginalized. That's what Jesus and his entourage did. And they're like, 45 grand would have did a lot for us to continue to have this agenda of meeting tangible needs. And Jesus is like, hold on, those people are always gonna be here. There's always gonna be tangible physical needs of poor and the outcasts, the orphans and the widows. You can always take care of them and respond every single day, but I am not always going to be here. What she's doing is a good thing. They thought it was wasteful. Judas, some experts believe he probably was the most vocal. He probably was the one kind of leading this indignant, you know, uprising of like, this is wasteful, scold her. I can't believe she's doing it. And the irony is that, <laughs> you know, he became the treasurer and he was probably exploiting money out of the treasure for his own benefit when he could have been using that money for the poor already. And he's leading this thing about like, we could have used it for the poor. The irony, he had a love of money and eventually will betray Jesus because Jesus didn't meet his need of the political revolution. He's like, I'm out. And he sells them out, as we'll see, as we already saw. He goes and meets religious leaders. You'll always have the poor. You won't always have me. There'll always be more ministry for you to do. There'll always be more tangible needs for you to meet. And I think one of the biggest obstacles for us as Jesus followers is we like to get busy and we like to justify why we do what we do and say it's a lot of good works for people. And I think one of the tragedies and biggest obstacles in our worship is our busyness. We don't ever just sit and reflect on the goodness and the presence of God in our life. We're on to the next thing, next sporting event, next thing, next volunteer, next, next meeting, next thing, my career, work, extra hours, all of this. We're so busy, we forget to even hit pause on one day a week or even every morning and just listen and pray and worship and seek and sit in the presence of God. We get busy because we got an agenda. And we think, God, I'm doing good works. I'm trying to meet tangible needs. I'm trying to serve people in a way. And we get so busy and the devil probably wants to keep us busy so that we don't sit in the presence and worship our Savior and our Lord. Sometimes it can become about the things that we're doing rather than sitting in the presence of God. You see, a lot of people, a lot of us think or think or treat Jesus in a way in which he's an addition to our life to meet earthly needs and desires that we have. And if that is you, Inevitably, inevitably and eventually you'll become disappointed and frustrated just like Judas. And you may even walk away and say, I'm out, it's too hard. Don't let that happen. Don't let your heart get hardened. Don't get so busy. Don't have an agenda. Don't worship out of an agenda of doing so much good that you miss out on sitting in the presence and worshiping the God of the universe who's loved you and has saved you from your sin if you've made that decision. Because a lot of times we just pray when it's hard we come back to church and we hit rock bottom or we're going through one of those valley seasons in our life. I gotta get back to church. Or we get married and have a kid and we go, yeah, I probably wanna raise my kid in the church. And so we come back to church when we realize we can't do this on our own. The reality is, is Jesus didn't come and die so that he could meet your needs. He came and died so that your soul could be saved. And if your agenda is to get some type of benefit in the club of following Jesus or the club of church, you will be disappointed and you will be frustrated. He came to give us a solution for our sin and our separation. He wants to save your soul. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to even his disciples. They don't quite fully get it. They had an earthly agenda in mind. So do we worship like the disciples with an agenda? And do we miss out on just sitting in the presence of God?
And then there's this third person. Her name is Mary. Now, it doesn't say this in Mark, but in Matthew and Luke, the same account is there. And we know that it's Mary who is the sister of Lazarus, the guy who came back from the dead, <laughs> and also the sister of Martha. And if you know the dynamic of Mary and Martha is like, Martha is the doer. Like she's like throwing the big party, the hospitality, make sure everything's all right. And Mary's the more of like, I just want to be where Jesus is. And, and, and Jesus loved Mary. He said he loved Mary, but he also, he kind of indicates that what Mary, he loved Martha, right? He loved Martha and what she did, what she brought. But there's just some indication of like what Mary was doing was like, just better and like just sitting in the presence of God and worshiping him with her whole entire being and just being present and investing in the person and the relationship of God and not getting so busy with day-to-day stuff. And so Mary got it. And the crazy thing about Mary getting it is like Jesus even says, she's preparing me for my burial. So like Did she know? Maybe. Did the spirit of God kind of like ordain that and orchestrate that in God's sovereignty? Probably that Mary would be the instrument to prepare Jesus for his burial, which is going to happen in two days. And I think Mary got it. She didn't have an agenda. She just wanted to sit and engage with the savior of her soul. She just wanted to be and worship and leverage and be exact, um, you know, extraordinarily uh, exaggerate. I don't know what the word is. She just wanted to sit and love him and connect with him in a deep way. Cause I think she might've knew that he was gone in a few days. She believed him enough to say, I know you're not going to be here forever. And she took, nothing was withheld from her to worship him. Nothing, no, nothing was of significant value enough that she wasn't willing to lavish him with and love him with and sacrifice to give him because she knew that he was probably going to be gone. In a few days, she believed him. She trusted him. And Jesus said, what she did was good. It was a beautiful thing. Now, if somebody else forced that and did that, it might not have been good for them. But for her and her context, because she knew and she was being obedient and the spirit might've been impressing on her, nudging her to do that, it was good. It was beautiful. And I think the reason that We need to worship like Mary because Mary, she worshiped out of gratitude. It's my final point. She worshiped out of gratitude for who Jesus is to her and what God is about to do on her behalf that she kind of put enough pieces together. And she was realizing, God, you are the author of my life. Jesus, you are the savior of my soul. You are the one who will, you are who you say you are. You're going to do what you are going to do. And I have no other option. And my hope and my trust and my faith is solely in you. And everything that I have is because you've given it to me. And there's nothing that I'm not willing to expense at worshiping you. And I think she did this in two ways, in spirit and truth. In the Bible, and John chapter four says, we should worship in spirit and in truth. And I think Mary was present, or her worship was present in those two ways. You see, in John four, let me set up real quick. Jesus has this interaction with a Samaritan woman. And basically Jesus is like talking about church with her. Like, like, hey, where do you go to church? And it's like, well, like your people kind of worship over here and our people kind of worship over here. And, you know, there's like this division. Like, so what do you say, Jesus? And Jesus is like, hold on. Like, it's not about this church and this church and not about how we worship over here and how we worship over here for these people. He responds to this Samaritan woman in this conversation in John 4, 24. It says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Two elements of our worship, spirit and truth. And so our worship 
is an expression in our spirit and in truth of who Jesus is to you, to us. Who is he to you? And based on who he is and where he sits on the throne in your life will determine how you act, how you love, how you serve, how you give, how you live your whole entire life. That is what worship is. And so in spirit, think about it this way. Is God calling you to that? Is he calling you to, to, to just swallow your pride and say, you know what, I'm gonna raise my hands because I, I, I am all yours. And I don't care if people look at me and go, they're weird. Like look at some of their hands, they're weird. Like, no, like who you are to me, I am surrendered to you. And I lift my hands in a position of surrender, you're mine. And I, I, want, I want all of you and I want you to have all of me. Or it might look like you just sitting down and letting the spirit really work on your heart and just let it solidify and you just reflect in that time when someone speaks or when worship's given. Or you show up to your small or your life group and you actually open up and you share, and you're like, I'm gonna worship him even in my troubles and my trials. I'm gonna confess it. I'm gonna get help. And that's worship. It's in our life. It's how we give. It's with our money. It's with our finances. It's with our time. It's every part of us. Is God calling you to it? Is there this restlessness inside of you, this nudging, this consistent thought that in his timing, you will surrender it over to him? And I love this. Mary in her spirit, I think, prepared Jesus for his burial. She, she didn't know that she was probably doing that. She was just leaning in to probably what, what, what the spirit was nudging her to do to sacrifice a $45,000 piece of, uh, or a $45,000 jar of essential oil on his head to prepare him for his burial. I don't know if she knew that, but that's what she was doing. In God's sovereignty and in his timing, through her spirit, she worshiped him. She was in tune with it. And then I would say in truth, looks like this. We worship in truth if it's in, it's in line with God's word. If, it, if it's informed by Jesus's teachings, that's what true worship and authentic, genuine worship looks like. Because the reality is, is a lot of us can manufacture a lot of passion and emotion and call that worship. And Jesus, I don't think is impressed or honored because of that manufactured passion or emotion. He wants heartfelt, genuine connection of honoring him of who he is in your life. It's not about you manufacturing and moving and being passionate and expressive. Jesus isn't really honored by that. He's honored by your heart. Why? Do you do that? Why do you express yourself in that way? And people can manufacture all kind of passion and expression that I would say is outside of God's word and truth and is almost disgraceful to him. So is it in line with his word? What he says? It's not going against biblical understanding and truth of what it means to express ourselves and live a life worthy of the gospel. And are we in tune with his spirit and nudgings and promptings of what he's calling us to, what we will sacrifice, what we will give, how we will live, how we will represent him because we are grateful out of gratitude, we will be grateful for who he is and what he's done on my behalf. Like Mary, she got it, cares about your heart cares about your motives, your posture, your life. He cares about the why. So is worship raising your hands and singing loud? Yeah. Is it sitting solemnly and just reflecting and letting the words meditate and ponder in your mind? Yeah. Is it giving generously? Yeah. Is it, is it serving consistently? Yeah. Is it loving unconditionally? Yeah. Is it being present and available with your spouse? Yeah. All of that is worship, when we look at it through the lens of gratefulness of what Jesus has done and who he is in our life, and it's a response to that. 
It's not a ritual or an obligation or a checkmark list that we have to, have to do. It's not an agenda that we have to try to fulfill and manufacture and accomplish so many good things on our own. It's just sitting like Mary, completely invested in him as Lord and Savior of our life. So do you worship out of pride or out of humility? Is it a ritual or is it just a response of who he is? Is it for blessing and your agenda of God being an addition to your life or is it his sovereign plan and will of what he's calling you to? Will we worship out of gratitude? And will we be honest enough with ourselves to see our pharisaical tendencies, look in the mirror, call it out and try to abstain from it and be more genuine and authentic in our expression? Will we try to put aside our agenda and our wants and worship out of gratitude for who he is? And the crazy part is, is Mary... She's remembered every time the gospel is preached. Like she didn't know this was going to be written down in three gospels and three books of the Bible that we would read for all of time. So my question to you is what's your legacy? How will people remember you? All your accolades, all your success, all your money, all your sports accomplishments, all of your whatever it is where they remember you as a radical, devoted worshiper and lover of Jesus, your savior. Is that the thing that will define your life? Is that the thing that you'll be most known for that at your funeral one day, people will go, man, the way they loved people and served God and impacted so many people's lives. That's what I want to hear. And I hope that's what you want to hear. Mary's remembered for all time. And she imitated the gospel so beautifully in her surrender and in her worship. Will we be like Mary? And we worship from a genuine place of humility, not out of ritual, not out of an agenda, but humility and gratitude for who he is and what he's done. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that that you offered that gift so freely. And God, I pray that you would help us identify areas in our life where we've missed it, blown it, manipulated it, and have dishonored you with our life or with our worship. And so God, would you help us Uh, Just be more genuine, be more pure, be more authentic. And in the way we can express ourselves with gratitude of who you are to keep you on the throne, to keep you as Lord of our life, not get distracted and busy and sidetracked. And you would hold the place in our life that you rightfully uh, can hold. And you would push us to be your people, a light, a force for good that would just impact our community and everyone around us. And we would worship you so radically that that's what people would know us as incredible lovers of God and incredible lovers of others and people. And we worship you so pure and so real. And I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us here at the Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God. And we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.